song about a man called Goth and a little boy wanted to be tarred with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the liberals, though he didn't know why. There were reasons. Our guest on this edition of Pot on the Hill may actually have the longest CV of any guest we've ever had. He played 332 VFL/AFL games, including two premierships. He won two best and fairest and was runner-up in the Brownlow in 1985, losing by a single vote to Brad Hardy. Was an All-Australian in 1995. He was president of the AFL Players Association and following that he entered state parliament at the 1999 state election and held seven portfolios over his 15 years in parliament, including youth affairs, planning, sport and recreation, the Commonwealth Games and the Respect Agenda. He's also a registered architect, a qualified teacher and is a member of the Order of Australia. Justin Madden, Thank you for joining us today on this special grand final edition. Thank, thank you for having us, Chris. It, uh, I, I very much appreciate the introduction. <laughs> thank you. Well, to tell us, what, what have you been up to since retiring from Parliament in 2014? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I, I wanted to continue um, you know, earning a living and uh, I went to, sort of got a real job for a living. So I've gone back to work as an architect. I work for a company called Arup, A-R-U-P. And they are uh, an international infrastructure um, engineering design company. And uh, that allows me to sort of bring together a lot of the, of the respective skills that I've developed over a number of years. So, you know, the architecture, the networks, um, the understanding, strategic understanding of politics and those relationships with the government. And then, um, you know, we're, we're the city of Melbourne and, and greater metropolitan Melbourne's really headed and... Um, what the needs might be, and and help uh, Arab as a company develop their, you know, their client base, but also help in identifying projects that even the government may not yet uh, have identified. So it's a, a very much a strategic role. So I enjoy that immensely, um, but it certainly doesn't have the uh, adrenaline rush that either politics or sport once had. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, at a much slower pace. <laughs> well, it's a good time to be in infrastructure, given uh, you know how much is going on around the state. Well, it, it is, it is, and, and you know we've gone through enormous growth in recent years, and there's a bit of catch up, and the pause that uh, the current um, you know state of play with COVID has presented is, is many ways allows governments around the world, but particularly in Australia, where there's such a significant population growth in recent years, um, just catch up. And uh, and a good reason too to spend money on catching up, and that that'll create jobs. And you know we we will see that in in the next few years. I think as as the accelerator comes off population growth, we'll yeah. probably see uh, investment in the infrastructure so that we can catch up. So that's it's it's an exciting time. I think yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a challenging one, but it's an exciting time too for the state and for the nation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if we can turn our minds back uh, a little over 21 years ago um, and you were entering Parliament, what, what was it that made you want to represent the Labor Party following your, your long and very distinguished playing career? Well, it's interesting. It's, it, it was, I hadn't um, dreamt of being uh, you know, a member of Parliament. It wasn't something necessarily on my to-do list. But... Um, uh, during my time in the in the in the football world, um, I, went, I was president of the Players Association at a critical point in time, and basically the game went from part-time semi-professional. It basically changed within 
really one season to full-time professional football. And with that, the AFL decided to regulate uh, their labour market. It's not often that um, the employer decides to regulate the market, but the AFL decided to. So it introduced three things. It introduced the draft, the salary cap, and the standard player contract all at the same time. Yeah. And in doing so, the standard player contract had some... You, you were forced to... You could only play football in the AFL if you signed the standard player contract and you agreed to abide by the draft and the salary cap and all the conditions within that standard playing contract. But there were no minimum requirements. And um, it meant that if the AFL had its way at the time, then, you know, all, all the, the stars, the superstars would get most of the salary cap and the vast majority of the players would, you know, get whatever they could mm. uh, negotiate individually. So so we fought a, uh, a campaign uh, across about 12, 14 months to have the standard player contract address the minimum requirements. And they, they don't seem dramatic now, but they were fairly dramatic at the time. They were a minimum salary, um, match payment minimums. They were also uh, minimum requirements for um, injury payments. And then the ability for players to have a little bit of uh, uh, licence on the choose of football boot. Which, you know, <laughs> seems ironic, but you know, if you... If that's the tool of your trade, then it's important that you get the choice yep. rather than have it forced upon you by your club. And it also meant that you had a little bit of leverage to negotiate with different bootmakers at the time. So there are a set of standard conditions. But it, but when that occurred, I really didn't know enough about industrial relations. And, and the Players Association was very much a... Um, it was very much a volunteer organisation. And so I, I thought, gee, I, I'm not sure what I need to do here and how we're going to go about this. So I went off and spoke to a lot of people in the Labor movement. So I spoke to uh, Bill Kelty yeah. and John Halfpenny. John Halfpenny was the leader of the Trades Hall Council at the time and, and a few others. And they gave me a lot of advice, which was very, very useful. And we, we put together a campaign and we ended up winning that campaign. And um, much to the disappointment of the AFL and um, <laughs> a significant loss of face on their part. But it, what it did was it really gave us uh, a significant amount of momentum. And, and off the back of that, I joined the ALP and uh, assisted um, you know, at events. Often I was a host or a, yep. a, um, you know, an MC or something. And, and really, my rapport with people across the ALP um, came out of that. And then on very short notice before the 1999 election, I was approached to see if I would be interested in a, nominating for a position in um, the upper house. It was, the campaign was basically underway, and on very short notice, I nominated. Uh, with some places to be filled. And um, I anticipated that I would be, uh, you know, all going well if I nominated and was pre-selected and um, ran. I, I, uh, we used, it was the Western Metropolitan Region. Uh, it, was, it was actually, sorry, the seat of Dutagala. Um, it was my neck of the woods. Yep. I knew the area very well. I knew people very well. Um, I had profile in the area. And I sort of anticipated that I would, uh, be able to learn on my feet that we'd uh, that probably Jeff Kennedy would get re-elected 1999. Uh, I'd sit on the back bench in the upper house in opposition, and I could um, find my way from there. <laughs> it didn't quite uh, work work out like that, though. No, it didn't quite work out like that, did Chris? <laughs> it was uh, to much to my surprise, as to anybody's surprise, uh, we were elected 
the numbers fell a particular way and within a few weeks of being elected I was a minister. Um, so I was the Minister for Sport in the Upper House of Victoria and um, I'd hardly ever seen the Upper House sit, mind you. Here I was a minister. <laughs> and I think I was sworn in as a minister uh, as part of the Brexit government before I was sworn in as a member of par- uh, Parliament, which is there's some irony there as <laughs> yeah. well. So it was, a, it was, you know, for me it was a great shock. I didn't have any great expectation to have that sort of role, but here I was. And, um, you know, it was a great privilege and it was a, a very exciting time. Um, and it was great to work with such wonderful people and, and representing such a wonderful community. And then um, I was there for uh, the length of the Brex primary governments for 11 years as a minister and then four years in opposition. Um, and I thought by the end of that, I was, you know, I'd, I'd sort of done my time and I thought, um, yeah, I'll move on to the next thing. So, yeah, it's, it was been, it was a, a wonderful time and a wonderful chance to do great things across Victoria, and I think we we can still see the benefits of that to this day. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, what was more difficult, being a, a minister or, or being a, an AFL player? Um, look, the, there are many similarities, um, and I sometimes I watch the footballers being interviewed after match these days where they, you know, they'd make very good politicians because they stick to the script. They don't give away any sort of... any. They really don't give away any inside information on the team play, you know, or the team plan. And I think, yeah, they sound very—they sound more like politicians sometimes than some of the politicians do. But um, in many ways, football um, allows you to understand the media. Um, yeah. It allows you to understand, you know, the football club politics is is um, treacherous in many ways. Is um, you know, real real party politics, and uh, see. So, if you're, you know, interested, you can learn a lot from a, a football club <laughs> in terms of setting up for a political career. And we've seen a number of footballers take on political careers as recently as Joel Bowden in the Northern yeah. Territory. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, yes, but I, th- I think often in in football, you've got a sense of what what the crunch is going to be like. You know, if uh, if there's a collision, you have a sense of what it's going to do to you physically and emotionally, and it's more physical <laughs> rather than emotionally. But in politics, the collisions are slightly different. Sometimes they're, um, you know, they can be very big collisions, uh, or sometimes they can be small collisions that do more damage than you think. So um, there are a lot of similarities. The other similarity that I often like to reflect on is I think a cabinet... Traditional cabinet's about 18 people, and so is a, mm. you know, an AFL team on, on the field is about 18 people. And um, it's not dissimilar. You know, you've, you've all got a, a role to, to uh, play. You can't all be the centre of attention, um, and you have to have some very good leaders in that bunch. And um, it's one of the great things that I've particularly enjoyed about both careers is working in a... And I still enjoy today in my other roles uh, is, is um, you know, working in a team and um, a successful team that achieves things by cooperation and collaboration and, and good communication. Oh, that's great. Well, well turning now to uh, individual glory, uh, you're a runner-up in the 1985 Brownlow and uh, in my research I discovered that you polled three votes in five consecutive games that year. 
Can you tell us a bit about that night? Um, mainly because I hear you got you started to get a bit nervous. Uh, you might actually win um, because the cameras uh, were on you and you weren't quite sure how to react if you did. <laughs> that's, well, that's right. I think it was about the second time I'd taken Julie, who is my wife now, as always been my wife. Um, I'd taken her out. It was our second date or something, and I think I said to her, and I knew I'd, I'd done all right getting votes, but I didn't think I'd, <laughs> you know, go too well. And um, I was trying to make a big impression on her, so I took her to the brown line. And these were the days before they had the red carpet, so it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as probably as intimidating as it might be <laughs> these days. And um, you know, she took that with a grain of salt. I think she thought I was sort of, um, you know, talking my prospects up. <laughs> and. Um, uh, I said, you know, there's a chance I might get a few votes tonight. Uh, um, you know, don't worry too much. Nothing much of it will happen. Um, and uh, as the night progressed, uh, the votes, you know, accumulated uh, at a greater rate than I thought. And I was very nervous towards the end um, because I was ahead, you know, going in, I think, into the last round in the, in the vote count. And I was getting a bit worried because I knew that there would be people at home watching... You know what the if I if I won, <laughs> you know what that moment might look like, and of course I was thinking, well, you know I, I don't know Julie very well, um, and of course there'll be a lot of people trying to interpret the body language at that point in time. Do do you you know is a big passionate kiss or is it sort of a you know peck on the cheek or is it just sort of a handshake and, or a smile? And there'll be a lot of interpretations about this. My friends watching, her friends watching, her family, my family. You know, so this was ruminating. I was ruminating on it and, um, you know, getting a bit anxious about what I might have to do um, more than I might win. And uh, in the end, I didn't get votes in the last round and Brad Hardy did. So he won the Brownlow medal. And I was greatly relieved, actually, in many ways, because (laughs) it meant I didn't have to go through the fanfare of, you know... um, uh, portraying what this relationship was either going to be or was in front of the camera. So it was greatly relieved. But, you know, fortunately for me, um, it all worked out well. We were married some years later and here we still are after 30 years. <laughs> oh, I, think, I think it was a successful night on all fronts. Uh, I think I think so. Now, you've played, you've played under some great coaches and three in particular um, who, you know, I think most people would recognise as, as some of the, you know, the greatest of all time, Kevin Sheedy, David Parkin and Robert Walls. How would you compare the coaching styles of those three men? Yeah, all, all, very, all very different, but lots of similarities, but still very different. Um, and, uh, you know, I worked better with some than others, Um Kevin Sheedy was very, you know, his record stands the test of time. Enormously successful, um, enormously creative in his thinking and um, inclusive. And understanding that that inclusion um, was, in, in fact, a, uh, a recipe for success. You know, so his, his um, ability to include um, and have Eston included in the big events, um, mm. you know, the, the Anzac Day event, but also, um, you know, the Indigenous Round, create that and, and bring, you know, a significant number of Indigenous players to Eston. Um, you know, that, that created a, a very different Eston to the one that I initially played at as a young man. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and he continues to contribute to thinking around the game. So a great sort of lateral thinker. Um, 
Robert Walls was very strategic, so he developed many of the set plays. Very hard taskmaster, and very sort of, you know, uh, very demanding. And that sort of has also has a shelf life, and I think that sort of proved itself out of Carlton. He was yeah. successful, but then at a, at a point, the players probably um, switched off a bit at a time when they should have been more tuned in. Yeah. Um, but he, every club he went to, he was very successful at. Um, and, and some of those clubs had, you know, limited capacity on their list. So the, he introduced the set play format, and, and that was part of our success. David Park and I enjoyed immensely because David was a... Um, you know, he was an inspirational coach in the way that he spoke and talked. He, he, from the John Kennedy School of Coaching, where you get a bit of philosophy and a bit of uh, Marx and a bit of Shakespeare in the lead up <laughs> to a game, which appealed to me a bit. So it wasn't just all about sausages and how you fry them or cook them. And he was, but he was also a great believer that you should have a life outside football. Um, you know, the other coaches weren't necessarily um, overtly encouraging that. They might have thought that, but they didn't say, look, I want you to do other things than just play football. Whereas David Parkin was very, very um, keen that his players have more than just football in their lives. And it, you know, you knew it was a great part of your life, a very important part of your life, but it wasn't going to be all your life and that you had to develop a life and thinking about your life beyond that. And that appealed to me. So I really enjoyed David Parkin's coaching. Um, he had two stints at Carlton. When I first started, and as I got towards the end of my career, he was the coach there as well. And I probably played my best football under David Parkin and won my best and fairest under David Parkin. Won a premiership under him late in my career when probably it should have been over, but I got another season or two out of <laughs> my career, probably because of David Parkin. So, you know, great men, uh, great coaches and great leaders. And, and what you learn from people like that is you, you learn to understand about leadership too. You, you learn to see how people, what works with people and different people in terms of different types of leaders. You know, some people need uh, OV, uh, leaders to be quite overt. Some need them to be subtle. Uh, some need to have an emotional connection. Some need to be just disciplinarians. But you learn a whole range of skills from seeing great coaches lead good teams. And uh, I was very fortunate uh, to work with those three great coaches. Now, we're here because it's grand final week, but I want to take you back to a semi-final on Saturday the 11th of September 1993. Uh, this is the earliest memory of football that I have. Um, you're playing Adelaide out at Waverley Park in a very tight game. The ball's kicked to you in the centre square, I think by Greg Williams. Pick up the story from there. Well, yes. Uh, so... Um... This is one of the highlights of my career, and it's ironic that I'm known for this highlight, which is basically completely contradictory to anything else <laughs> that I did in my football career. So I was a slow, lumbering ruckman, um, really bounced the ball, and you know, really did anything terribly skillful other than just hit the ball to small players, and I would suggest made them look much better. I think but, you're being uh, very modest there. <laughs> On this occasion, I was—I probably should have been down in the back line, but I was getting a bit tired towards, I think, the end of the quarter or something. It might have been even the beginning of the quarter. And um, I, I just sort of hung out a bit. I, hang, I hung back because I thought, I just have a feeling the ball might swing in this direction. Uh, and I did like to run into the forward line on occasions in my career and make the most of it. But Greg Williams, off the halfback flank, really spotted me hanging around just in the centre, kicked the ball to me. I was basically standing there 
basically 10 metres, 15 metres off the back of my opposing ruckman, it was Sean Wren. And uh, with that, I I collected the ball to the mark and thought I'd better start running here because there's nobody else down the field, <laughs> really. But as I ran, uh, I was expecting that the Adelaide player on one of my colleagues would run towards me and I could handball the ball over the Adelaide player's head. And so as that happened, um, a guy called Juan Delulio, who was in the team, was the player I was anticipating I'd handball it to, but he, he peeled off. And the Adelaide player stayed on him and peeled off with him. So they opened up a <laughs> corridor for me to run into. So I bounced the ball, thought, God, what do I do next? And I was, I was sort of, there's no one near me, so I thought I'd better keep running here. And David Parkin said, if you're going to bounce the ball, you upset the play downfield. He said, there's anybody. So if you if you bounce the ball, you might as well just keep bouncing it and run and kick a goal. <laughs> and not that I was thinking that at the time, but it was very much according to his formula. So I just kept running and... Stephen Cannon was leading up the ground. I attempted to kick it to him, uh, but it'd take me so long to get there. He'd run so far up the ground, the ball hit the goal square and just bounced through for a goal <laughs> after two bounces on the run. So it was nobody expected me to do it, certainly me. Uh, I think it's the first time I've heard the crowd laugh <laughs> rather than cheer, uh, sort of laugh in irony. And um, I, I think... I would like to think that it was the turning point of the game because I think it dawned upon Adelaide at that point in time, the Adelaide football team, that if this bloke can do this in this way, there's something wrong with our game plan. And there definitely was. And so we were, I think, we were a goal or two behind and uh, from there we went on to win the game. So I like to claim that I was the sort of the... I had the psychological impact of the game. <laughs> Because of uh, Adelaide, were just so shocked that I would be able to do that. So it was a lot of fun, and and funny that it's still people still remember it this day. This has been pretty quiet. His left footer, oh madness, 30 metres in the clear. Wren giving chase. Ooh. What a sprint! This is something to watch. Madden goes long for goal. He might have kicked it. Whoa. Sensational. Absolutely. Well, well, it did. It did. Uh, you were the catalyst for getting Carlton into the grand final that year in 1993. One of uh, four grand finals that you played in. Can you give us an insight into what grand final week is like? Um, yeah. Look, it's it's a wonderful time in Melbourne um, on all fronts. You know, there's a real sense of excitement, and if you're in the involved in the game, it, there's sort of excitement. Um, uh, it's not overwhelming, but it can. It, you know. It, it's tricky. You've got to you've got to sort of remain calm in the lead up to it, in anticipation of you know what might be a game that you've um, worked for all your life, um, and um, and not sort of use up all your adrenaline in the week beforehand. So this you know not not to burn your energy too soon. So uh, you've got to sort of try and hold off until you get to the game. But um, when when you run onto a there's no moment in your life like it than running onto a um, a full MCG on Grand Final day, and um, uh, it, you, you know you come you come to the end of the the tunnel or the race they described us, and you you hit the ground, and the music's blaring, and the, the MCs yelling things out, and uh, the crowd goes nuts. It's um 
there's there's no adrenaline rush like it. Um, so mm. it's it is a wonderful game to play, it. and I feel for those players who don't get a chance to play in a grand final. But uh, it was very, I was very fortunate playing four and to win two. I think sometimes I think you basically got to lose a grand final to win one. It's very <laughs> rare that a team gets into a grand final without having played one in the, the year or two beforehand and wins. Mm. Um, uh, so most teams sort of almost lose one before they win. And that's what basically happened in 90, um, 86 and 87. We lost in 86, we won in 87, and we lost in a 93 and we won in 95. Um, but uh, the one I probably enjoyed most was, I mean, you know, it's hard to split them, but I enjoyed 95 because I didn't, I was getting towards the tail end of my football career and I didn't think I would... Um, Remain in the team for the entire year. I thought, I'll, you know, if I can get a, if I can get a full season here, full complement of games here, I'm doing pretty well. And I sort of half anticipated I might be getting those off the bench, but uh, we were able to win the grand final, and I was able to remain on the field for the whole game. So I was, I was pretty chuffed by that. So. And you kicked the sealer um, by running, well, running into I, an open goal square. Well, I was, I think again, it was a bit like that, that Adelaide goal. I think, you know, so here. <laughs> I saw that recently because 25 years since that game, so there's been the occasional highlight that Carlton have put out through their social media. And um, I saw that goal again, and I hadn't seen it for a long time. And I'd actually, I think I'd run from down the ground while the play was on the flank and ran into the goal square. And um, the Earl Spaulding, who was playing for Carlton, flicked the ball over the top of a few players after a ruck, after he contested the ruck on the boundary. And I was basically standing in the goal square on my own. Um, and was able to kick the goal. So um, again, you know that if if the player I knew is doing the, what they should be, I shouldn't be in the goal square on my own, <laughs> and uh, nobody should let me stand in the goal square on my own, which I was, and and I was able to kick the goal. I think we're, we're ahead then, but again, you know, if I can do that at that point of a critical <laughs> game, there's something wrong with the other team can't plan it. I think. I had a sense that if I can do this, I think we're going to win this by a lot. <laughs> well, and you, and you did win it by a lot. Um, and as you mentioned, you played in two winning grand finals and two losing grand finals. Can you kind of compare you know, the the emotions that you feel in those two different scenarios? Yeah, well, this that as you mentioned, there's an enormous amount of excitement in the lead up, and so you you've invested a lot of physical energy in the whole year, but a lot of emotional energy not only throughout the course of the season, but particularly in the, in the, the final series. Um, so you make the grand final, you know, it's you're sitting on a nice edge, basically. Um, you've, you've sort of um, used up almost all the energy in your system you can to get to the grand final, but you've got to find some more to get over the line to make it through the whole day and hopefully make it through the day with a win. So, you know, you've, by the time you get to the end of the game, you've got nothing and you should have nothing left in your tank physically. Um, and, and that's each of the grand finals. I was like that, nothing left in the tank. Um, and so if you lose, it's heartbreaking. And not because it initially means as much as it should, but emotionally you're so heavily mm. invested and physically no energy to spare that you're just sort of empty uh, completely completely. Uh, and so you're flat as a tack if you lose. Mm. But if you win, it's almost just sheer relief rather than adrenaline excitement because you've used up all that adrenaline. Yeah. So it, it, I saw Cathy Freeman's run 
not that you can compare that because it was a that's a, a great moment in Australian history, but uh, you know the the relief on Kathy Freeman's face when she won that gold medal at the Sydney Olympics, there there wasn't much adrenaline in that. It was just sheer relief. And if you win a grand final, it is very much that. Um, you know, in the, in the moments afterwards, after the awards, when you've recuperated a bit and um, it's sunk in, there's a little bit of adrenaline maybe, but it's really just. Uh, you're completely spent, but you want to. If you've completely spent, you want to be spent in winning rather than losing, so that you've got uh, you've got some something to go on with. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think the disappointment of defeat is uh, stronger almost than the uh, the sense of victory. You know, uh, yeah. so uh, that's why I think some teams use a, a grand final loss to get them the victory in the end mm. in the next few years. You, you can, so long as you're not so broken from it uh, emotionally that you can't come back from it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the great things. And it's one of the things, of course, it gets better with age. Um, you know, you think, oh, gee, how did I do that? Because it seems like a, a world away in another life. But also, uh, a bit like Carlton, is because uh, we haven't won a grand final for 25 years, um, you get the stories get better with age, of course, you know, and the the product of the day is, of course, better with age because you've got nothing compared to today. So <laughs> it's good. Is, is, it, is it the best memory of your playing career, winning those two grand finals? I think so, yeah. I think I think undoubtedly. Um, the, the first grand final was, just, it's it's not a shock, but, you know, you, it's all new and you take that in and, and try and appreciate it, but it all happens pretty quickly. And the celebrations happen pretty quickly too. Second grand final is great because it does allow you to to reflect on the first one mm. and enjoy and appreciate the bits that you might have rushed over. Um, in the first grand final, I remember in the second grand final when we won and they give you the cup and you're, you're doing your lap of honour, uh, you know, blokes were getting into a jog. And I said, like, hey, slow down here, fellas. <laughs> you know, don't, you don't need to jog this lap. It's much time. I said, well, once you leave the ground, and you're in the change, it's really over. You know, mm. it's, it's, you've completed the task. That is over. I, I didn't say it in those words, but it's over when you leave. I say, hey, sir, spend as much time here and doing this lap as we possibly can. You know, make it as slow as we can so we can enjoy it and take our time. And, and that's the sort of difference is you get, a, you get the ability to enjoy it second time around yeah. in a different way than because um, you, you don't fully understand it first time around. But uh, both are very enjoyable. You mentioned so it's uh, 25 years ago um, that you won the 1995 grand final. So a lot, you know, for the games obviously changed a lot since then. What what do you think the biggest difference is between the game now nowadays and you know the, the grand final that we played uh, on Saturday and and back when you were playing? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot more structure to the game. There's a lot more, um, probably a lot more discipline in the way players play to that structure. And if you if you don't play to that structure you probably don't get a chance to play very often. Um, in, in our day, it wasn't professional to the same extent it was. So whilst we played to structures and formulas and strategies, um, you know, you're allowed to do the the random, ill-disciplined, surprising thing on the field, which might um, be so random that it might work. <laughs> so hence those two things, you know, you, ref- you referred to the goals I'd kicked. Probably in this day and age, I would have broken some team rule to be able to do that um so i may not have been allowed to have been in that space but i did in those days um so i think i think 
there's a difference in today's game is it's a bit more structured, a bit, um, a little bit more predictable around the structure, although random things happen. Um, in our day, I think it was a lot more random than it might have been, that it, a lot more random than uh, it might be now. And, and so a game could turn pretty quickly through different things, which doesn't seem to necessarily be the case now. Um, but uh, it's still a, a fantastic game, and I think uh, um, I think women's football too. I, I love women's football. Um, I love watching it because uh, it is a bit more random. You know, mm. players you think, and maybe because the skills are not um, as cultivated as might be the case in the men's. But you know, sometimes somebody running into an open goal, bouncing the ball, you think. In any other game, it might be a dead certainty, but in the in the women's competition, goals are few and far between, and sometimes a small slip up can turn the game. And so those things happen in the women's competition, but I think it makes it a much more enjoyable game. Mm. And the other thing I like about women's competition about how, and this is a contrast between AFLW and AFL men's, is AFLW. Win, lose, or draw—they just look like they're having a great time. Mm. They love. They look like they have a fantastic time playing the game. If they win, even better. If they lose, you know, it's it's not good, but it's not it's not so bad. Um, the men are all very, uh, you know, they're all. They don't necessarily look like they're enjoying it because it's all very um, structured, I suppose, mm. and they're, they're risk averse. There's a bit more latitude, I think, as as the game development in AFLW is taking place. So I, I quite like watching AFLW at, at a local level uh, or, at, you know, at national level. It's a great game. It's a different game, but I love it. In the same way, men's and women's tennis are different games, mm. but they're both great games. So um, I think there's a big future for football, Australian rules football across the country because of that, that inclusiveness. And um, the more the game puts effort into that, I think the better the game will be. Absolutely. Uh, do you still have any involvement in football? Not directly. Oh, I have a little bit of involvement. I'm, I'm, I'm on a few non-for-profit... So I'm on uh, a few non-for-profit boards. Um, so I'm on... A, uh, and one of those is uh, AFL Sports Ready, which was established initially, I think, by Kevin Sheedy and Bill Kelty, which was about um, providing traineeships for... Um, Young people, particularly yeah. Indigenous young people, and uh, I'm the I'm the chairman of that organisation. Uh, so, so I've sort of got a finger in the pie, but it's not about necessarily on the field footy. It's about things around yeah. footy, um, and I enjoy that. And I, we do some great work with uh, young people, particularly Indigenous young people, um, yeah, to try and you know give them a, a hand up. That's great. And just finally, before uh, before we go, who do you think will win on Saturday, Richmond or Geelong? I Geelong look look in really good form, but I'm not sure the teams they've played have been as disciplined um, in defending around the play as Richmond are. I think mm. Richmond are particularly good on the defensive side of the play when the ball is t- in, in the clinches, when it's tight. So Geelong were able to get it away from Brisbane and Collingwood at the back of the pack and move the ball pretty quickly. I think Richmond are pretty good at closing a pack down and then wrestling the ball out for themselves. So on that basis, I, I reckon Richmond are the team more likely to win. 
some of that will come down to really also the key goal kickers. You know, is um, Tom Lynch going to kick uh, a lot of goals? Hmm. Uh, or is the big fella down at Geelong, uh, Tom Hawkins, going to kick straight and kick a lot of goals? Yeah. So a lot of it depends on the, you know, the clinches, uh, getting the ball out, and whether the key forwards kick straight or not. So I think if Tom Hawkins kicks straight, Geelong are well and truly on their way. But my sense is Richmond are probably the team that will win. But I'm not very good. I've never been good at tipping. <laughs> so so don't don't bet on anything I say. <laughs> Um, but I would, I, I suspect Richmond, and they probably have a little bit more experience in grand finals at this point in time too. No, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, today. It's been an, an absolute pleasure chatting. There's, there's few people um, who have contributed uh, as much to, to uh, you know, Victoria uh, uh, as you over the last. 20 or 30 years so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today this oh, special grand final thank, edition thank you very much for those all those flattering remarks chris so <laughs> you know on that basis uh, i'm happy to turn up again and do a podcast anytime you want <laughs> but, uh, very generous and very kind of you and i, I just got, i gotta say to it look it's been i feel like i've had uh, a very fortunate and a very you know, sense of privileged life to be able to play you know you, you think of the two great institutions in 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 Victoria, and the two best teams, of course. Um, you, you know, the, to be able to play uh, AFL football in Melbourne at the highest level, and to be able to represent uh, Victorians on behalf of the Labor Party in Victorian State Parliament, yeah, I feel like I've had a very fortunate life. And um, there are so many people who have allowed me to do that. Uh, I feel very grateful that uh, not only have I experienced that. Not only that I've been able to do that um, and to contribute, but, um, uh, you know, I'm still around to see it. <laughs> it's even better, you know. I haven't, um, I haven't driven myself into the ground to do it, so I feel very privileged. And so to all those people out there who, who might be listening from the Labor Party, thank you for your support. And it's hard to imagine there would be too many Carlton supporters who are Labor supporters, so, you know, but there might be one or two. So I'd like to thank them as well for their, their support for Carlton over the years so thank you we've got a few at it, uh, state office who are very very keen uh, to, and happy to have you on the podcast today so there is oh, a very, few <laughs> very very good I oh, will thank you make sure it's Chris great thanks Justin <laughs>